Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, let me again thank you all for being here. It is such an opportunity to be encouraged on this first day of the week and to come together and, and, and be refreshed by the Word of God, by our communion one with another, and by these things that we offer up to God as a sacrifice, the fruit of our lips we, that comes up to Him as that sweet-smelling aroma. We thank you, each and every one, for being here. This morning I want to talk about this idea of Jesus being the first fruits from the dead. And this is not, I guess it's not a good thing to tell you what the lesson is not going to be about, but I am going to tell you that. I get asked a lot, probably the, the most frequent question I get asked is, what happens when we die? Um, and this lesson is not entirely about that, but it is um, somewhat about that. How about that? In that, um, what we want to look at this morning, and, 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 and we understand that idea of why that question is important to us. What happens when we die? Because we want to know what happens when we leave this life and go on to the next. And while I'll tell you that Scripture tells us, and I hope we'll see today quite plainly, it's still a little hard for us to get our arms around. Because what we're, what we're being told is that, 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 that what Paul will tell us is there's a change that must take place before we um, inherit eternal life. And so that's where sometimes it's cloudy for us is that we're talking about things of the physical world where eternity is of the spiritual world. And so we have to use terms and, and terminology that us as mortals can understand while the afterlife is about spiritual things. So what I want to talk about this, this morning is the best glimpse, at least as far as, as, as I see, of what happens when we die is we can look at what happened when Jesus died. And we can extrapolate from that and see that that was what will apply to us in many, many ways. And so when Paul talks about Jesus being the first fruits from the dead, there's a reason that he says that. And there's a reason that he uses that as an example. Because that is the example, the precursor the one who has gone on before us is Jesus Christ, and he has shown us the way, and he has shown us what will happen. And so he is indeed the first fruits from the dead. He is the first one who has risen from the dead and has ascended into heaven. And by that pattern, we can understand a little bit more about what will happen to us. So let's use that as part of our text in understanding the idea about the first fruits from the, from the dead. And so when we talk about the first fruits, let's talk about Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, we've been studying this section recently about our Lord and his death. We remember that he is on the cross there and there are two criminals 
uh, crucified alongside him. And one of them makes a, a, the confession about who Jesus Christ is and, 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 and to ask him to remember him when he goes to his father. And Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's where we'll start. And understanding that Jesus understood that when he died that, that day, that he was going to paradise. And so we already know then from that that Jesus has shown, is showing us the way by which he is going to die and be resurrected. But what does this idea mean about being in paradise? Well, we have to look at other places to understand that. Go with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. As Jesus is, is teaching his disciples, he tells them this story about the rich man and Lazarus. About these two men with very different backgrounds and how they died. And they went to Hades. And we'll see that term here in just a moment. But that's what happened. Lazarus says, or, or he starts with the rich young man. The rich man, he says, he dressed in fine clothes, verse 19. And he's living in splendor. And in contrast to that, verse 20, a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate covered with sores. He was in a terrible physical condition and a beggar and a pauper his life. And both of these men died. Verse 22, it says, Now it came about when the poor man died, he was carried away by the angels to, the, to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died also and was buried. And in Hades... He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So from that we can understand that they're both in the realm of the dead, and that is Hades. But we understand that there's a separation in Hades, because Lazarus is in one place and the rich man is in another place. And the rich man is in torment. He is being tormented. He is being punished. He is being... Um, brutalized by what's going on to him. But Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. He's in paradise, as Jesus would allude to. So you see that separation that's there in, within the realm of the dead, there's a separation. Verse 24 says, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus here that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here uh, to you may not be able, and that none may cross from there to us. So you see that chasm was the, was the separation between the two, and none could pass in between. So while uh, Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham and, and being comforted, the rich man was in torment. Verse 27 there, he said, I beg you, uh, I beg you, Father, that you should send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now, the little lesson within the lesson here is the idea that after death, it's too late. 
It's too late to repent. It's too late to, to ask for forgiveness. It's too late to put on Christ in baptism. It's too late. The things that we do in this life, the decisions that we make, the decision that we make to follow our Lord, those will be the decisions that decide where we go when this life is over. Verse 29, it says there, he had, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If Surely if someone raises from the dead, they will repent and, and believe then. Verse 31, he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So there's lots of little lessons within that, but let's focus on what we are talking about here. We get this glimpse into paradise through this story that Jesus tells about the, the separation there is in the realm of the dead. Within Hades, there's a separation of torment and paradise. Jesus says he was headed to paradise. He told the thief on the cross there, today you will be with me in paradise. He knew where he was going. He was going to that place of the dead. Within that place of the dead, he was going to paradise. Look over with me into Acts chapter 2. We can further emphasize and, and bolster our argument here by what Peter says here on the day of Pentecost. When he is telling his, the brethren there that are gathered what has happened to Jesus and what it all means. Peter stands up there and gives that sermon about Jesus and him being put to death at the hands of men. But he makes the argument that while he went to, went to Hades, he went to, to paradise within Hades, God did not abandon his soul there. So in Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 23, it says, This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Make a mental note of that right there, that it was impossible for him to be held within its power, that is, the power of death. Verse 25, it says, For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also abide in hope. Why? Verse 27, Because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. So that's a psalm written by David. And Peter uses that to allude to the fact that Jesus has, had died and had gone to Hades, but God did not abandon his soul there. Verse 29 says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead, that is, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are witnesses. So you see how he tied that together. He tied the, the prophecy within what David was speaking about, not leaving his, abandoning his soul in Hades. 
he coupled that with what God did for Jesus. When Jesus left the earth and went, and went to the realm of the dead, he was there until God raised him from the dead. And Peter is making the argument here that God has done that. God has resurrected him from the dead. And because of that, and he goes on to say he has seated him at his right hand, and he has made him both Lord and Christ, this man who you crucified. And so Peter's making that argument that because of that, because of all these things, you ought to understand who Jesus is. And it goes on, the brethren say, what shall we do? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. And so we see there then this, the, the start of the church. We start the, the start of those who would put on Christ through baptism. It begins right here. And so the story, the, the message of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. And what all that means is it means that that's our faith. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our faith is rooted in the, the very idea that Jesus died, was buried, his soul went to Hades, but it was not abandoned there. God resurrected him. And now that is the basis of our faith, that God resurrected Jesus from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, is laying all this out and telling the, the, the Corinthians there that this is the, the basis of your faith. Verse 3 of chapter 15, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So not only was this a fact of, of the day, but it was a fact of prophecy. It was prophetic in the many years past that this would happen, and now it has come to fruition. Now all these things have taken place. Isaiah speaking of, of Jesus coming, David speaking of Jesus coming, all the way back to Genesis where we see the the promises made to Abraham, all that has come through now and come down to the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised according to the scriptures. And Paul goes on to lay out all the witnesses that saw him, that saw the resurrected Christ. And he come down to verse 13, it says, But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith is also vain. So our whole faith hangs on the idea of the resurrected Christ. So of course it's important. And of course it is worthy of our study and worthy of our understanding. And also worthy of understanding that Jesus has blazed the trail ahead of us. He, has the, he is the one who has gone on from the resurrection into heaven. So let's talk about that. If Jesus is the first fruits, then there are remaining fruit. Let's start by understanding this. Travis read from us, read for us a moment ago, the idea that we all face death. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, the first part there says, For since by a man came death. Let's be understood 
uh, in all our minds that we all face death, that it's inevitable, that it's out there. Unless the Lord returns while we're still alive, we will pass from this life through death. But there's hope still. The faithful will be raised again. Look in the second part of verse 21. It says, By a man came also the resurrection of the dead. So if we were left with that, we might not quite understand it, but verse 22, he explains exactly what he's talking about. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So he's talking about the man or the men in which he was mentioning before. Since by man came death, that is the sin of Adam, and let's understand that we don't all, are not all guilty of sin because of Adam's sin. But we are all subject to death because of Adam's sin. And so sin came into the world through Adam. But now through the man Jesus Christ, we have the resurrection from the dead. And so while we all face death, there is hope and understanding that through Jesus Christ, we can be resurrected from the dead to go on to our glory. But there's a change that has to happen. And this is where all those scriptures tells it, tells it to us very plainly. It's sometimes a little hard to get our arms around exactly every detail. But let's just let scripture tell us what scripture tells us. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50, Paul says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's where it's a little hard for us to understand. How is it that we, our souls, can be reunited with our bodies and then from that ascend on into heaven as we'll talk about here in the Thessalonian letter in a moment. Brethren, I don't really know the answer to that question. But what I do know is what we clearly see from Scripture that what happened to Jesus. Jesus died. His soul went to Hades. His soul was reunited with his fleshly body and he came out of the tomb. And he walked the earth for some 40 days in the presence of many witnesses. Now, that's where the stories change a little bit. When we're resurrected from the dead and, and are made alive again in our bodies, although our bodies are going to be changed according to what Paul says right here, there's not going to be a 40 days, there's not going to be a thousand years, no other time limit is, or time period will be there. That day will be judgment day. That day will be when the day when we are raised from the dead, that's when judgment will come. There will be no more time on the earth. That will be the time when we stand in front of our God and give an account for the things that we have done in the flesh. We need to be ready for that day. So we'll all be changed, and we're all going to follow the path that Jesus has set before us. So now let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
again, Paul lays this out again. You're going to hear some familiar things like trumpets sounding, like the dead in Christ rising first. You're going to hear those things again as Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. Listen to what he says. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning verse 13. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who are dead, that you may also not grieve as the rest, uh, as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, see, there's our trailblazer, there's the one who has set the path before us. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. The ones, he's saying, if we're alive when the Lord returns, the ones who are already dead in the Lord will go first. They're the ones, the ones who have fallen asleep, they're the ones who are going to go first. For the Lord, now listen verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Just like Jesus, as he rose from the dead, inhabited his body again, and then ascended into heaven, that's the path we will take. Trumpet will sound, a shout from the archangel, we'll be reunited with our body that will be changed, according to what Paul says, and then we will go to, up into heaven to meet Jesus in the air. Verse 17, And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So once the dead have risen, then those who are still alive will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now look what he says in verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, if you take that, um, maybe it's a little gloomy to think about death and the resurrection and, and judgment and all the, the powerful and, and fearful things that will be happening in that time. But Paul says to take comfort in this. Take comfort in this. Because if we are righteous and we are, are, are in that place of paradise and, and, and we're resurrected from the dead, it's a joyous day. It's a wonderful day. It's the day in which we will begin our life eternally with our Lord, our Savior, with our God in heaven above. Comfort one another with these words. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, we left off reading there, verse 54. I wanted to bring this to your attention as Paul continues in this discourse. Verse 54 says, when this, when this perishable will have put, all, put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Remember how I told you to hold on to that idea of, about Jesus conquering death? Jesus has defeated death. The last expression of that will be when death, along with Satan, is cast into the fire and burned for eternity. That's the final expression of that, as we read in Revelation chapter 20. 
But Jesus, through his actions, has defeated death. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, he says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. God subjected all things to Jesus, including death. So when Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The idea is that Jesus has, has put down death. He is victorious over death. So the, death, uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sting of death is sin. So if you're going to be stung by death, if death is going to be a place for you like it was for the rich man, it's because of sin. If you're a man, a righteous man like that of Lazarus, and you're carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham, where's your, where's your sting, death? Death, where's your victory? You have no sting over me. You have no victory over me. Because I've been found righteous, because I lived a life according to God's will. I lived a life subservient to Jesus Christ. If I do that, death has no victory over me. Death has no sting over me. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has set that path. He's gone on before us and given us that victory over death. The last part there. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not just happenstance, of course, that Paul writes that. In the, in the context and in the discussion of what happens when we die, he says, therefore. What does that mean? He says, it means that because of the things that I have just told you, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Because all these things are going to happen, we need to make sure that we are abounding in the work of the Lord. That we are doing what God wants us to do. That we are not shying away from our responsibilities. That we are not shirking from the gospel. We are not being made to put off our faith. We're not being asked to deny God and giving into that. No, we're being steadfast. We're being immovable. Knowing that death has no sting over us. Death won't be victorious over us. Because why? Because we are abounding in the work of the Lord and we are not toiling in vain. Because this is the way God has set it up. Jesus is that trailblazer. He has shown us the way. He is the first fruits from the dead. He is the one that has told us and shown us that we pass from this life, we enter the realm of the dead, and then when the Lord returns, we'll be resurrected. I hope this has been an encouraging lesson to you. And I hope, I know it doesn't answer all the questions about what happens when we die, but I hope this gives us a good starting place. If we want to know what happens when we die, let's look to Jesus and see what happened with him. That's a good place to start. And he is victorious over death. And because of that, because he has conquered death, we don't have to fear it anymore. 
There's lots of fear in the life we live right now, isn't there? There's lots of fear around us. We are embroiled in things that make us fearful. That hasn't changed God. That hasn't changed what God wants for us. That hasn't changed what God expects of us, and nor has it changed the outcome for us. We are faithful to God. No matter what's happening in this world, he'll be faithful to us. He's waiting for us. He's always ready to welcome us home. He's always ready to welcome us back from out of the world to be in his kingdom.